Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The word of the Lord. Advent is a season of darkness interspersed with light. We do that in representing the candles and often Christmas lights, things like that, that break into the shorter days, but it's also meant to be symbolic obviously, pointing to the hope, the light in the midst of a dark and broken world. Darkness, of course, in spiritual or psychological terms is often associated with depression or doubt or fear or worry. People say when they're going through something hard, I'm in a dark place, right? Most of us can relate on some level to anxiety and worry that is personally dark. Sometimes it's just worry and anxiety about your kids or about finances and money or about health. And this can be directly related to you or somebody close to you. But we in our modern culture tend to be such individualists that our worries and anxieties, our darkness is very personal. And it's very personal with those closest to us. It's not corporate, which was the case more historically, in the sense that we're not as worried about everyone else and about our people, if you would. Now, that's becoming a little bit of a change over the past decade. I think because of political division and global threats, there's more anxiety and uncertainty on a national level, like, will we survive? I don't know. <laughs> but because of relative peace in America and extreme prosperity that we've all experienced, none of our darkness... Our fears and anxieties match that of historic Israel, especially in that first century period. If you were living in the first century in Israel, you didn't just think about your own health 
and kids and finances. You thought about your people. It was a corporate type of world. And your people had been suffering and oppressed forever. By the first century, you had dealt with decades, centuries of violence and exploitation and constant insecurity because of who was over you. You had no recourse if something was taken from you. You had very little hope. Israel in the first century was a place of darkness. Now, of course, today, some who live in war-torn lands, or for those of you who have experienced or know people who are historically marginalized, there is some sense of that for you as well. That sense that we may not survive. It's dark. Zechariah who gave us the song that we're talking about today, knew this story, the story of suffering and of darkness. And the question that was on Israel's lips at that time, where is God? When is God going to show up? He said he was good. I don't see it. Now, going back to what we heard last week, for those of you who weren't here, we heard the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were an older couple who had no children, but they were faithful Zechariah was a priest, and it was his turn to go serve in the temple. He goes into the temple, and while he's there, the angel of the Lord comes and tells him, your prayers have been answered. God is coming. Oh, and you're going to have a son. Zechariah doesn't believe it, so the angel says, you will not be able to speak. And so for nine months, he's not able to speak while his wife Elizabeth, who's old and barren, conceives. Eventually, she has a son, and it's time to name the son. And so when the people ask who were we going to name him, the obvious answer was Zechariah. It was traditional, it was expected, it was what you did. But mom Elizabeth says, no, his name will be John. And they're like, all right, great, but let's go to Zechariah. What is his name going to be? Obviously, it's supposed to be Zechariah, or at least some other family name. And Zechariah takes out a writing tablet and writes down John. Everyone is blown away. This is breaking with tradition. This is not what you're supposed to be doing. This is not what is expected. But both Zechariah and Elizabeth knew God was doing something new here. God was starting something different. God was breaking into the darkness, rewriting the story that had been Israel's story for so long. And as soon as he writes down John, his lips are unleashed. And after nine months of silence, he's able to speak. And Zechariah begins by praising God, what we call the song of Zechariah. It's been used for centuries in the church as what's called a canticle. A canticle is scripture that is poetic, that is turned into a song or prayer, and is read and rehearsed again and again as a way to remember and memorize and be shaped by the poem and the prayer. And in this, he declares God is doing something new. But the sum of the song, as N.T. Wright put in his commentary on this, is that Zechariah in this story comes across as someone who has pondered the agony and hope for many years. This song is about God acting at last, finally doing what he has promised many centuries ago. One evil empire after another had trampled them underfoot. Now at last, God was going to give them deliverance. We can feel the long years of pain and sorrow of darkness and death overshadowing Zechariah as he declares God is doing something new. 
There are several themes that jump out as you read through this, but I want to focus on three this morning. The three themes are God's faithfulness, God's mercy, and God's visit or visitation. We'll use that to guide as we uh, explore this, this song of Zechariah. So God's faithfulness, his mercy, and his visit. The song of Zechariah, if you go read it again in your own Bibles or on your Bible gateway on your phone, is basically broken up into two parts. The first half, verses 68 to 75, is what God has already done. It's filled with all sorts of biblical allusions and imagery from the Old Testament, saying here is who God is and what he has done. And then starting in verse 76, the second half is what God is now doing in this guy, John, this son of mine, and what he is about to do as he comes, as he arrives, as he visits us. Who God is, is based on what God has done. So he starts with what God has done, and he moves into who God is. And so, in order to understand a little bit about this remembrance of what God has done already, let's look at a couple of verses that typify what what Zechariah is writing about, talking about in this passage. In verse 72 to 74, we read that God remembers his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him. So God is remembering his covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham, that we would be delivered from the hand of our enemies. So here's, here's Zechariah in you know, the first century talking about something that happened a thousand years earlier. God is remembering his covenant. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, it goes back to Genesis 12 where in the midst of a fallen and broken world after the Genesis 1, 2, 3 account, God comes to Abraham. He calls Abraham. He says, I want you to go and I will choose you and you will be my son and I I will make you my people. And Abraham has no kids at this time, much like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And God's promise is you will have a son and you will have many sons. I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation and through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham believed God. And yet, he doesn't have children for many, many years. Eventually, he has a son, Isaac, a miraculous birth. When Isaac comes along, it's the joy of his heart. But eventually, as Isaac grows up, God calls him again. And he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. He's testing him whether he actually believes in God and trusts God. And at the last minute, as he's about to sacrifice his son, Isaac, the Lord intervenes and provides a ram to take its place an animal that will be sacrificed in place of his son. But because of his faithfulness, the Lord returns to his covenant when he says this in Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemy, and through you all nations will be blessed. Zechariah is going back to that, and he's saying, God's remembering. It's a thousand years, but God's remembering the promise he made. God's remembering that he is going to defeat our enemies and make us into a great nation. God is finally acting to fulfill what he promised long ago. As you read through the Song of Zechariah, what you find is it's a series of biblical allusions. Going back to the Old Testament, it's imagery and allusions about Abraham and the Exodus 
and David and the prophets, that God is going to choose Abraham and he's going to bless him and make him a nation. But then they fall into slavery in Egypt, so God acts to, to save them from their enemies, delivering them. And he raises up a king, David, so that they would become a powerful and great nation. But of course, they fall into idolatry and go into exile. And while they're in exile, God's speaking through the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah says, I will one day come. I will restore you. My redemption is coming. These are the illusions, the imagery that you find in Zechariah. Zechariah is saying, look at the past. Look at everything God has done. And see what he is about to do. God, what God is now doing, Zechariah says, what God is now doing is the sum, the culmination, the goal and end point of all that he has done in history up to this point. What God is doing, Zechariah says, is that the redemptive story is reaching its climax. This is the point when Vader is going to be battled, when the Death Star is going to be blown up. This is the point at which the ring is going into Mount Doom. This is when Scut Farkas is going to be battled and Christmas morning is coming. This is the great anticipation of all that we're looking for climaxing. And Zechariah wants us to look over the past on purpose. God's past faithfulness anticipates his present and future faithfulness. Here's what I would say. History is revealing. If you go to a doctor, what's the first thing they want? They want your history, right? Why? Because your past probably indicates something about what you're dealing with right now or will be dealing with in the future. Your medical history is relevant to your present medical diagnosis and to your future care. If you're doing a job interview, one of the things you want to find out about in doing a job interview is what the person has done in the past that is relevant to the job that you're possibly hiring them for. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you really like them, if they're very funny, if, you know, if, they're, if they've got a great resume by, by paper, it's past behavior, past performance is the best indicator of future performance and behavior. If you're dating somebody and thinking about marrying them, the question should not be, am I in love with them right now? It's what has he been like in the past? What does everyone else say about her? What was he like before we were dating? Character is who you are over time. History matters. So, if you want to know who God is and how he might act in your life, you need to know what God has already done. And that's why we emphasize Scripture here. We emphasize the Bible. We lift it up. We believe in the authority of Scripture because the Bible is the story of God and his creation. It tells us who God is and what he has done. It's also why, actually, we enact liturgy in our church. And every church does this, but you see it more prominently in ours. Liturgy are rituals and repetition that affect our heart's loves. So think about what we do each week at Christ Church Vienna. 
What we do each week involves word and sacrament. You can see that it's broken up on your little sheet here, word and sacrament. We spend time reading God's word, singing praises about who God is and what he has done, praying to God using written prayers that describe who God is and what he has done. And then we enact it physically in the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. We're telling and retelling and telling and retelling through ritual and repetition the story of Scripture so that that story, the story, shapes us. It's why uh, I passed out in the fall and I've passed it out again, these morning prayer guides that also have a reading guide to get you through the Gospels. Because as you read and pray with Scripture in a daily devotional sort of way, it begins to shape you. It begins to shape you because you begin to see who God is because of what he has done. And you can begin to apply it in your life now. Oftentimes, we don't look at the power of story in our lives, but it's there. One Berkeley professor who gave an article about the power of story talked about the different elements that go in a good story. A good story captures your attention right at the beginning because of either fear or awe. So fear, there's Harry, the orphan, and you all of a sudden are worried for him. Or there you are in the vast star universe, and a ship comes in, like in Star Wars, and you're in awe. Fascination draws us in. It draws our attention. But in order for a story to be more powerful, it also has to be able to have anxiety. All of us have a negativity bias, this one uh, writer from Berkeley said. The negativity bias is because we are afraid of things and we don't want danger or terror We instantly are drawn to stories that have to do with danger, terror, or fear because we're worried for the characters and we place ourselves in their place. And that also is the third part of a good story. It's the ability to empathize with the character. You and I need to be able to identify with somebody in the story to be able to see ourselves in that place. In fact, when a story gets you going, the oxytocin apparently in the brain, the same thing that a mother has when feeding her baby, that same thing begins to fire up in your brain because you're identifying with another person, either in their joys or in their sorrows in a good story. Okay, so attention, anxiety, and empathy all come together and transport us into a story. Now, we read stories, we watch stories all the time. Sometimes they're just for entertainment. But there's also stories that we tell and hear and assume about who we are and what this world is about. And the stories that we buy into shape us. Jeremy Adam Smith, that Berkeley professor, in his article, The Science of Story, said this, experiencing a story alters our neurochemical processes. Thank you. And stories are a powerful force in shaping human behavior. Stories are not just instruments of connection and entertainment, but also of control. The stories we listen to and tell ourselves shape our beliefs and self-understanding. They shape our worldview, our desires, our loves. And so if we start off with a question like this, is there a God or what is God like? What we actually tend to do naturally 
or the average person does is we start with our own thoughts about God. We start with our own personal thoughts about God. Those thoughts are inevitably shaped by the stories we've already bought into. The stories that tell us what is good and what is bad and why we're here. So as an example, being an upper middle class white American is a story in and of itself. It is a narrative about how things are and how they're supposed to be. And if you don't understand that, you'll likely assume certain things about God based on that story. Like, well, everything's always gone well in my life, therefore God must bless me. On the other hand, if you have dealt with abuse or loss, very real pain in your life can become the story through which you read God, affecting your ability to trust him. Women who have been abused by men are going to struggle identifying God as a loving father. The idea of God as a loving father to somebody who has dealt with abuse at the hands of a man is absurd, oppressive, evil-sounding. Usually, we try to make sense of our, our own experience through stories that match. So here's my life. I know myself and what I've gone through, and I try to find a story that matches, a narrative that fits who I am, right? And this is why identity politics is so powerful today. Identity politics is basically you and your group need to defend yourself against them and their group. That matches our own kind of individualistic, selfish way of thinking about things. It affirms my experience as us and identifies a threat, the evil, the enemy, them, whatever it is. We find a story that matches what we want it to match. The biblical narrative, which Zechariah is talking about. The Bible and the gospel, which is the plot line of what God is doing in history. The Bible And the gospel is the story. It's the story that matches every experience. But it is also the story that intends to challenge every other narrative you or I buy into. The gospel aims to define your meaning of life, your view of the world, your understanding of God, and your understanding of yourself what God has done and who God is matters more than any other story. Who is God? Zechariah looks over the story. That's why he talks about Abraham and rescue from Egypt and King David and all these things that God has done. Who is God? It's what he has done and is doing and declares God is faithful. You can trust him. God is not only faithful, he is also merciful. God is faithfulness and mercy. And I love that this is a driving theme in this whole passage in Zechariah. In fact, the whole story of the birth narrative in Luke 1 and 2. In verse 72 and verse 78, in both the first half and the second half, Zechariah talks about the mercy of God. 
In the first part, he talks about to show the mercy promised. To show mercy is basically to do mercy. And as you read through the scriptures, you find mercy is not just a feeling. Mercy is God acting on behalf of his people. He's doing something for people who can't help themselves. God is acting out of grace and love and kindness to fulfill what he wants to do for his people. God acts mercifully. That is what God does. The motivation behind all of God's actions, and you can read this from Genesis to Revelation, the motivation is the tender mercy of God, verse 78. I love this double phrasing. This phrase, tender mercy, is compassionate mercy. The word tender and mercy are very similar. And that word tender actually is, is a word that when it's by itself is usually translated compassion, but it literally means your bowels, your intestines, your guts. We might say your heart to be a little more gentle. It is gut-wrenching, heart-rending, mercy, loving kindness and compassion. When you put these two together, it is to be deeply moved at the most core center movement of compassion and love for someone else. If you're a parent with kids, no matter how old, you understand this. Parents inevitably will go through the gut wrench and heartbreak when their kids struggle or suffer. It doesn't matter how. They struggle or suffer socially or academically, or athletically, or as they get older, financially, or in health. When you see your kids' dreams crushed, you enter their pain. You feel it viscerally. It tears you up. You ache for them to win. You ache for them to be included. You ache for them to be well. This is God's motive for all humanity. Tender mercy. For his people Israel, he has tender mercy when they're crying out in slavery in Egypt. When they're in exile, he has compassion and tender mercy on the people in exile and makes these promises in Isaiah. Throughout the Old Testament, you can read that God is the God of tender mercy for the weak, for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner, and the poor, for the outcast and the oppressed. God is the God of tender mercy, not just in history, though. He's also the God of tender mercy for you and for me, because God is faithful and God is merciful. And here's what I would say, is that even if, even if whatever's going on in your life seems like God is not showing up for a long time, Like, where are you, God? Know this. God's character does not change. Like a mom whose heart breaks for her kid's suffering, God is a God of tender mercy, of compassion, and of heartfelt love for you. Whatever you're going through. How can we be sure of this? Because God fully identifies with us. He fully identifies with us because he became one of us. That's the whole thing we sing about at Christmas, right? It's what we've declared in Philippians 2. God became one of us. God visit, visits us. He visited us. 
The second half of the passage talks about um, John being called to prepare the way, being prepared to prepare the way for God coming. We see this in verse 76 and 77. And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, I don't know if you've ever prepared for guests coming over to your house or how often you have them, but when we prepare at our house, it's a little bit manic. I've found that our kids either argue with us about why are we doing so much for these people coming over? Does it really matter? One of our kids is smart enough to just escape or avoid. Where is that kid anyhow when we need somebody to clean up, right? The dog that we have is a herding dog and has no idea what to do. I'm over here. Sarah's over there. We're commanding kids in that room, trying to clean up, get the pillows just right, get the trash thrown away, shut every bedroom door, shove things under beds, right? Because a few people are coming over. You prepare because you want to be ready. You want people to see the good side. In a sense, that's what John's talking, or God, God is talking about through Zechariah and John coming. But really, it's this. He knows, God knows, the people will not be prepared for when he visits. Because no matter how he comes about or when he does or what he says in advance, they're going to be thinking something entirely different. They're anticipating God coming in a different way. Here's the declaration in verse 78 and 79. The sunrise shall visit us. In other words, it's going to dawn like this morning. There's going to be a glorious dawn to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Israel's expectation was that when God came, it would be socio-political redemption. Enemies like Rome would be defeated. There would be a new king in Israel like David, and they would have a kingdom where they would rule not just Israel, but the whole world. They would be in power. That's what they anticipated. What they could not anticipate was a manger. Zechariah says, God is coming. He will visit. He will restore all things one day, but now his justice and his shalom and his kingdom are coming for you in the person of Jesus. you're not going to be ready. I love the imagery of light and dark as a biblical imagery and as an Advent imagery and as one that's in here. Light, of course, in the Bible represents God's presence. Wherever God is, there is light. Darkness is the absence of God, being apart from God. Hell is described not only as fire, but metaphorically as darkness, where you can see nothing. It is fear and separation. Death is talked about as physical death, but it's also talked about as spiritual death, being apart from God in darkness. The Bible makes it clear that all people sit in darkness, not just Israel, not just people who are under oppression. All humanity is in darkness because all humanity by nature is apart from God. But the light is coming to guide the way. Now, the interesting thing is Zechariah. Zechariah is described in the first part of this chapter as a righteous man who walked blamelessly with the Lord, and he was also a priest. In other words, he didn't do wrong, by the way, we kind of count doing wrong, and he was a minister, the highest religious guy you could get. He was good, and he was religious. He must already be in the light, except he says this, the light is coming to guide our feet 
in verse 79, to guide our feet. Zechariah is saying, I'm in darkness too. I need the light. I need God to visit me. Even the most righteous and blameless of you, even the most religious of us, need God to visit us. What if who God is and what he has done isn't what you've been assuming all along? To experience God's faithfulness and mercy and presence, his visitation, you and I need to realize who he is based on what he's done and who we are not. Only if we do not let other stories define him and us can we experience his salvation. Here's the good news 2,000 years after Zechariah. God has visited. In tender mercy and covenant faithfulness, he came 2,000 years ago in a Jewish peasant baby named Jesus. When this story becomes your defining story, then this God becomes your God. Let's pray. God, in the midst of struggle and fear, anxiety, and darkness at times. You sent your son, the light, to show us your faithfulness, your mercy, and your presence. Give us hearts and minds to see this Advent and Christmas season, who you are and what you have done. Amen.